Well, if you have a Bible, I hope that you do. Please turn with me to Revelation chapter 22. We uh, will not finish Revelation tonight, but Lord willing, we will finish it out next next Sunday night, Lord willing. Um, Revelation chapter 22, um, and um, I um, have just simply titled this, Living in New Jerusalem, um, as we'll see us walk through um, our text tonight, I think you'll see that uh, more so. And Actually, I, I will probably back up just a little. Um, we're going to read, uh, mainly focus in Revelation 22, 1 through, 1 through 6, but I am going to read for our purposes, because they do go together, um, uh, chapter 21, um, and we'll, we'll pick it up in uh, verse 22, and we'll go through, in through chapter uh, 22, verse 6. Um, so Revelation chapter chapter 21, verse 22 through uh, chapter 22, verse 6. Uh, again, be mainly focusing on verse 6, but I think it gives us a good context for um, what we're talking about. So if you're physically able to do so, let me invite you to stand with me as we honor the ring of God's holy and written word. Revelation chapter 21, beginning in verse 22, hear the word of the Lord that's given to you and I tonight. And I saw no temple therein, for the, God, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the, glory of the, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall never be shut all the, all, at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defiles, neither whatsoever works abomination or makes a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. And he showed me a pure river of water, uh, of the water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bore twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall, he, shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun. For the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly be done. Let's pray. Father, as we take up this text, may you be glorified in it and, and honored in it, we pray. Help us, give us wisdom, give us understanding now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. So, we are closing in on the end of our very long journey to the book of Revelation. I did not count how many sermons, uh, probably should have, but uh, I know we are closing in at least on uh, probably close to, um, in the uh, high, mid to high 40s, if not close to 50 um, sermons. And so, we have, uh, we have spent a good number, almost a year in uh, Revelation, and so uh, we praise God for His goodness in this journey um, but throughout this journey, what have we seen? What have we, what have we summarized? Let's summarize what we've sort of seen. What we've seen is the church's voyage, is their journey through um, highs and lows, ups and downs, and yet through it all, God has remained sovereign. 
God has remained glorious. God has remained merciful. God has remained um, sovereign over the nations. God has not, in one, for one second, un, un, unleashed from his control times or seasons or the nations or the victory that is Jesus Christ. And ultimately, that is what Revelation is about. It is about a... It is about the final and ultimate victory of Jesus Christ over all of God's enemies. I mean, if we had to summarize the book of Revelation, I would say that that would be the, the best and most concise summary that we could give about Revelation. It would be God, uh, the, the final and ultimate victory of Jesus Christ over all of his enemies. Uh, and I, this, is, this, is a, this is the time in which we now come. In Revelation, at the end of chapter 21 and in chapter 22, we, we see this, this is the reality. There are no more enemies. They've all been, as we saw earlier in, the, uh, in the chapter 21 and in chapter 20 and 19, we saw the, the, the utter decimation and the destruction of all of God's enemies. And it does, uh, this book directs us constantly over and over and over again to to continue to look to Christ, to continue to focus on his glory, to continue to recognize the world system for what it is and the gospel for what it is and how that through Christ, Christ will conquer the nations through the gospel. There There is no future for the people of God or there, there is no, there is no future uh, for us apart from Christ. There's no future for anyone apart from Christ. After all, Jesus is the Lamb of God who uh, takes away the sin of the world. John tells us. Uh, John the Baptist tells us in the Gospel of John, in chapter uh, one, we're told that Jesus is the Lamb of God through whom God the Father made made it possible for us to be met, to be reconciled. And so we we look here in this passage of Scripture in Revelation chapter twenty two, and we see this New Jerusalem, this 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 holy. Uh, thing and I told you last week that I don't I, I do not believe uh, and, and you can disagree with me please feel free to do so but I do not believe this is a literal city this is representative of the of the church of Jesus Christ God's redeemed people um, this is a, a construction that uh, um, that is very similar to um, to to what Ezekiel saw in his temple. Uh, and it is now John telling us uh, that uh, in, in, in symbolic terms of beauty and grandeur and goodness that God has shown him what the future is ultimately for God's people. And this, this ultimately will complete for us the, the idea of, of, of the portrait of New Jerusalem. Um, it, will, it will complete our, our description, or John's description, Christ's description probably would be the best and uh, most accurate uh, uh, statement. Christ's uh, ultimate victory in the last day of our history. And so we, we see this beautiful picture of, of God at work through his people and in his people. We see God moving and working and showing us wondrous and glorious things. And it is interesting because as we as we start out, we could we could have went further back in chapter twenty one where John starts the journey, and he talks about the gates and the walls, and he talks about the uh, the, uh, the the streets uh, and all of these and, and the foundations and the splendid decorations. Right, he's being taken on an angelic tour, which which is very similar to who? Well, in Ezekiel chapter forty verses forty chapters forty through forty eight. Ezekiel has a very similar journey. 
Um, Ultimately, Ezekiel lived prior to Christ, so it wasn't fully revealed. But John living uh, after Christ and now proclaiming Christ's ultimate victory now takes us. uh, We are now taken on this guided tour, this shorter guided tour, but a guided tour nonetheless of God's God's completed and perfect new city, this new Jerusalem, this beautiful, once and for all completed church of Jesus Christ. Um, it sounds uh, it sounds amazing, doesn't it? As John begins to describe, if you back up to chapter twenty one, talking about uh, the the different emeralds and the jewels and all those that are that are appearing and the foundations and the gates and the the fact that there's no more moon, uh, there's only light all the time and the gates are never closed. Nothing enters there that ever defiles. No abominations. Nothing. And then he starts going on in chapter 22, verse 1. He talks about a pure river of water, of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and out of the Lamb. And then he goes on to talk about the tree of life that covers both sides. And all of this is to show us this beautiful picture of God's work. Now, what is, the new, what is this representative of? This is representative, ultimately, of the fact that um, God has, through the gospel, ultimately made everything new. He has, he, has, he, has, uh, he has made everything brand new. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, look what John says here, that the, that the fruit that the tree of life bears is what? It's for the healing of the nations. That is the purpose of the fruit. Now, if we go back now, just, just so you aren't, don't miss this, let me just say, all of this is very much Garden Eden language. This is very much Edenic language. This is the language of Eden, right? This is all of this being described is, is the language of Eden. And so what the Lord is describing here through, or John is describing to us, the Lord is showing him, is a, is a, is a new Eden Eden very much in, in uh, Genesis 1 through 3 has, uh, has, has temple language. It has, has beautiful cosmic temple uh, language. Uh, Adam being the priest and uh, Eve being a, a priest and, and, and the temple being the garden and, and God coming down and meeting with them. And ultimately, um, when they sin, God offers a sacrifice in the temple, which is Eden, before they're then sent out and they're clothed by the, by the, um, by the animal skins and, and so on and so forth. And what was it that they ate in that garden? In that garden, they ate one thing that they were told not to eat, the tree from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But that tree is no longer existent in this new Jerusalem. What is now here, we're told that there is a tree, and that is only the tree of life. And this is the tree that we were meant to eat of, but we did not. We chose the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and now God rectifies that uh, man's sinfulness uh, through Christ by ultimately giving to us, to allowing us to eat from the tree of life. So John is, is seeing all of this, and he's proclaiming all of these glorious things that he's seeing. And the presence of God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, Jesus Christ, it, it, every, the entire city revolves around the Trinity, this Trinitarian God who has, who has revealed himself in history, who has shown himself throughout history. Everything that happens 
as we read through chapter 21 and chapter 22, everything that happens, it all centers upon and, and, and goes round and round and round uh, the person and the work of our Trinitarian God. He is the one worshiped. He is the one being served. He is the one that we live for. He is the one that we move for. He is the one we breathe for in this new Jerusalem. This is a, a beautiful picture of God's glorious work. And yes, we do get glimpses of this new Jerusalem. Every time the local church, um, we, we, we gather together from every, every background, every, every uh, socioeconomic, uh, ethnic, or, or any other type of background, the local church, gather, we gather together, right, as God's people, and we worship. We get a sense of, of the beauty of, of heaven, uh, not in its fullness, but we do get a sense of it. People coming together from different places and different walks of life, worshiping together the true and living God, the one who is worthy of all worship and the one who is worthy of our praise. And truthfully, as we read about and as we look at New Jerusalem, we see a breathtakingly beautiful picture of the work of God himself. We get a beautiful picture of what it's going to be like for us to fellowship and commune with God. Not, not as we do now, although certainly we do get to commune with God now. Certainly we do. Certainly we get to pray and, and we get to read his word. But, but that, relationship will not, that, it, that relationship will have been replaced with the better, which is us being in the presence of God constantly. We will, we will know him. We will, we will worship him. We will serve him. We will, we will live with him. He will dwell with us. Not like the children of Israel uh, in the book of Exodus where we are told that the Lord told them in, in Exodus, or told Moses, he said, I, I, can't, I can't live with these people or I will utterly destroy them. That has now been done away with because Christ is our peacemaker and we have been made new, transformed by the power of Jesus, King Jesus. And our, we have, we have, our sins have totally been dealt with and we have been saved from the presence and the power of sin once and for all. Having been given new bodies, we will then reign with Christ, live with Christ and the Father and the Spirit forever and ever. And so while we have a taste of this, while we do have this today, we certainly will experience what John is describing in a much more glorious way in a much more glorious manner. Sure, we, we, we are able to assemble and worship. We are able to, to, to serve together. We're able to do what we do, but yet we still battle uh, this against sin. But it is amazing that Jesus became our Emmanuel, that we could then one day live with him once and for all. Jesus became God with us so that we could forever be with God. And this is, the, this is the beautiful presence of God, the communion of God, right? We, we partake of the table of the, of the Lord, reminding ourselves of the work of Christ and Jesus' promises to us. But there we will feast in the very presence of God, not having to, not having to remind ourselves of the hope that's coming because the hope will have been given birth to at that point. And we will commune with our God. We will live gloriously with our God forever and ever. There will never be an end to that day. And that's why John says, even though, even though it is interesting, John employs um, the fact that he talks about the, the, the tree giving off, her, giving off its fruit uh, every month. But there is no time. 
But yet John talks about it in terms that we can understand, in terms that we can, under, we can, we can fully understand. And it's funny because what, do, what we see in Revelation 22 is promised to us now and is a reality now but will ultimately be experienced then, right? Because it's encouraging, it's exciting to think about how safe and secure we will be, how joyful it is, how happy it should make us that we are safe and secure, not just now, certainly now by the power of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself says that no man can pluck you out of my hand, right? That we are safe in, the fa- we are safe in him, and then ultimately we are, we are safe because the Father holds us in Christ. So we're doubly bound, doubly safe, and the reality is glorious. But how just as glorious to this is the reality there's coming a day when we will see that, that safety and security and we'll live in it once and for all. How does, how does that then, how should that then impact my life? How should that impact your life? How should, that, how should that drive our worship? How should that lead us to worship the living and the true God? Because in our day and age, yes, 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 there is still much darkness, right? We aren't, we aren't home yet, right? I think we would all agree with that. We're not home yet. We're still sojourners and strangers. We're still pilgrims in this, in this strange land, passing through, right? The, 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 serving the God of the universe while the world who was created by him serves the creation rather than the creator. And so while we, while we live in, in times in which it often seems to be dark, we recognize that God is breaking through in this world, has broken through and, and, and established, if you will, God in Christ established a beachhead in the cross from which then he then invades the world and conquers the nations. And our communion with God will one day be absolute and perfect. It will be absolute and perfect. It will be a great opportunity for us to serve and to worship before the face of of Almighty God, to, to do this before the presence of Almighty God, who will, as we're told, will fill the new Jerusalem with the radiance of His glory. The radiance of His glory. We're told that there's no more need for sunlight during the day or moon at night, right? And it's amazing because to think about this, because we, we live in, in such linear cycles, don't we? We gauge everything by time because time, it's what we have. It's, it's, it's not infinite. It's only finite, right? Our time upon the earth is very short. Our time in history is very short, and then we die and we're gone. And I don't mean to say that morbidly, but the reality for us is we live in such linear fashion that we, everything must for us have a beginning and an end. And we, have to, we, make, we make decisions based on, on, on times and dates and, and seasons and all of these things, that the, from everything from planning vacations to, uh, to uh, travel to you name it, every, everything in between we do this because we are people constantly bound by time but here in new jerusalem in revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22 time is no longer an issue we live outside of time even though that for millennia the sun and the moon has given light to sustain us in that day in god's in god's creation and his in his creative order um, but yes, and, and I will say this, but even in this world that has been decimated by sin, destroyed by sin, rocked to its very core by sin, and now longingly groans for the, for the day in which Christ will uh, make all things new, right? And 
But even then, we still catch glimpses, glimpses of this breakthrough for us, don't they? Um, uh, go up on a, you know, go go out into the wilderness onto a, um, onto a, um, a, a, just an overhang, and just watch the sunrise, and watch how God paints the, uh, paints the 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 sky with colors and clouds and rainbows and all kinds of beautiful things. Watch as God powerfully um, sends uh, the lightning upon the earth and his power is displayed in all of this. We catch glimpses of God's glory in this creation, but yet we look to the day in which it will be perfectly displayed once and for all. So yes, there is still much darkness, but the new is coming. The new has come. The new is coming. And we look forward to the day in which Jesus returns and ushers in this new time, this new day. When God's children play and God's children live 24 hours a day, seven days a week, if I can use that language, in the most powerful light ever, in the light of God himself, in the brilliance of the glory of God and of of his Lamb, Jesus Christ. And John constantly reinforces this by identifying what? The lamp of the holy city, right? He constantly talks about this. That it's the that that this is this is the the, the imagery of, of God being the lamp, right? Um, because as he says in verse five, and there shall be no night there, and they they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. And this constant idea of of the no longer the need for for uh, any other external light, because Christ is the lamp of the holy city. And it's amazing as we think about this because this is one of the things that John gave us, one of the sayings of Christ in the Gospel of John. And the Gospel writers give this to us as the other Gospel writers give this to us as well. And Jesus saying that he is the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. Well, in Revelation 22, it is fulfilled. It is ultimately fulfilled. It is ultimately fulfilled. Jesus Christ came to drive out darkness and sin and evil, right? Jesus came to destroy, as 1 John tells us, uh, one, of the, one of the works of Jesus's, uh, one of the consequences of Jesus' work upon the cross um, is that uh, not only to secure salvation for us, most certainly to do that, not only to, but, but also to, to overcome the works of the, of the evil one. And in doing that, he destroys the works of the evil one, John tells us in 1 John. Jesus's, the consequence of Jesus' work is that he becomes for us. This isn't the, I don't want you to hear me saying this is the main thing. This isn't the main thing, but this is one of the consequences of Christ's ultimate victory is that Christ for us becomes our victor. And so we can speak of, we can speak of him as our Christus victor, Christ our victory, our victory song who has taken away all reproach and has conquered all enemies and, and, and is gloriously arrayed in battle for battle and will overcome all who raise their head or their hand against him. And so God gloriously shines. The light of God's grace, the light of God's mercy, the light of God's presence shines. It shines. It shines in that day, yes, but it already shines. You say, what do you mean? Well, why is it that we don't need the Shekinah glory anymore? 
Was it was it that the Shekinah glory was taken away? Well, first of all, it was done so in a in a uh, as an act of of, uh, of uh, judgment against the nation of Israel, right? But the reason we don't need the Shekinah glory is uh, no, we don't need the external glory of God at this point in our lives is because ultimately we have God not just with us in Christ, but we now have God in us who is the Holy Spirit. And so we become the temples of God. That's what Paul tells us. We are the temples of the Holy Spirit. God does not need to dwell in houses at this point made by human hands because he dwells in a much better place in, in, the, in, in the fact that you and I are his temple. We are his temples built up in Christ. Christ having saved us and delivered us out of the domain of darkness and delivered us into his eternal kingdom and into his everlasting light by making us part of his people who we, as we faithfully follow our Savior. And so while, while we, we, we have this unexpected uh, or this, this unfulfilled expectation, we know it's coming. We know it's coming that Christ is going to make all things new. God is going to fulfill his promises to us. It is interesting, though, that, and I want to say this, that as God overcomes, why do I say the gospel is going to ultimately overcome the nations? I didn't just pull this out of, the, out of a hat or out of the air, right? But it is interesting that as you read in the first 19 chapters of Revelation, the nations and the kingdoms of this world are the enemies of God. But in chapter 20 and 21 and 22, there's a shift. There's a shift that takes place. You say, well, what, what do you mean? Well, if you read, if you read through Revelation 20 and 21 and 22, what is it that, that we hear constantly? That the nations, what? In verse 21, chapter 21, verse 26, and they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Did, 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 you, did you see that this is, and this is not the only place that it talks about the nations and their glory uh, now falling down and worshiping their rightful king. They shall bring the glory of these nations into it. And as you go back into chapter 21 particularly, there is this shift, massive shift from the nations being the enemies of God to now the nations are brought under the authority of God and the authority of Christ, and they serve him fully. They serve him ultimately. They serve him to the last, and they will never again rebel. I don't know about you, but I think that's, that's interesting because in chapter 17 and 18, we had the discussion of about, the, about, how, the, uh, about how the false prophet and, and his woman, the whore of Babylon, led the nations astray. But after God vanquishes them, he now transforms that from through his bride, he now transforms the nations through the preaching of the gospel. And it's a surprise as it turns out, it's a surprise that when the New Jerusalem appears, nations and kings have repented. They have repented. They have, they have had their shackles broken. They are no longer bound to Satan and to the evildoers, the beast and the false prophet. But instead, Christ Jesus rescues them and they follow him into a new and promised land. 
And this is, this is what we see, as, as we'll see at the, very, at the very end here in Revelation. We see that these believers are converted from all the nations, political leaders, powers that be, everything. These men will come, these women will come and bow the knee to King Jesus and serve him ultimately and completely. We will see the final and ultimate results of centuries, of centuries, of millennia of world missions come to completion. And so when you and I train for missions, when you and I train for evangelism, we need to, be pre- we need to prepare our hearts or church planting or, or whatever the case may be or even just worship. When we, when we are training ourselves for these things, we need to see all of these things in their greater, grander picture, in their setting. Because so often missions or evangelism or church planting or even worship, they, they all, they, it's almost like they, people want to just make them a silo and it just all executes there. And really that's what we're all supposed to be doing. When in reality we're supposed to have a much broader, grander picture of these things. That is that we are, we are partnering with King Jesus to bring the gospel to the nations so that he, by his grace, would grant them repentance and faith and that they would be brought into his kingdom. We must be faithful. We must remain faithful to the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations because we do so in the hopes and the expectation that King Jesus is going to win. This must be our expectation. We are pilgrims awaiting to arrive in the promised land, and there's not going to be a single person missing. Let me tell you that. There will not be a single person missing who's supposed to be there. God will sovereignly have worked and brought about every person that is supposed to be there, there. And here's the beautiful thing about all this. God, God doesn't make everybody one color, does he, in all of this? No, no. He doesn't take, even take away their cultural distinctives, does he? No, no, not at all. But he leaves us, right, in all of this because he wants us from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group worshiping and honoring him. Now, certainly we'll have the same tongue. Certainly we'll be able to communicate as it was meant to be in the beginning. But mankind, redeemed mankind, in all of its colorful, multicultural diversity, God has not stripped that away. You want to know why? Because it was in the very heart of God from the beginning. And the reality is that God, in all of his glory, is going to honor himself and glorify himself through peoples and tribes and tongues and nations throughout the world in this new Jerusalem. It's funny that in verse 26, uh, 24 and 26 here of, of Revelation 21, it says, And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring in their glory and honor into it. And, and again, just over and over again, we see the expectation of the gospel working and moving, even despite, despite, and this is said despite the darkness in this world. And you say, well, what do you mean? 
Well, I know it's easy for us to want to pray that Jesus gets us out of here as fast as possible. But in reality, the fact is that Jesus is doing his work through the gospel. Even now, I know it may not seem like it, even in the midst of the most, the most uh, discouraging, evil, wicked regimes of the nations, God is working to bring them to their knees to the preaching and the proclamation of the gospel. China stands as one of the greatest Nations filled with Christians on the face of the planet today. South Korea and other places around the world are filled with people who truly proclaim the name of Christ. It's amazing that even even in places like North Korea, the gospel still gets through. In Iran, the gospel still works. In the Middle East, God is still working and moving in amazing ways. God is working and moving for his own glory's sake. And it's in this understanding that we will bring into this new world and lay at his feet all that we are in service to him, having been made new in Christ. And notice this. It's interesting that John here is emphasizing, John is emphasizing the ongoing influx into the city. He emphasizes an ongoing, constant people coming in to this city, constantly coming in, constantly moving. There's there's always an influx of people coming in and coming in and coming in and coming in. And he says, so much so that it'll never be dark. And so just like in ancient city times when the gates were bolted after dark so criminals and thieves and enemies couldn't get in unaware, There will never be a need for for this because no evil, no misery, nothing, no darkness of sin, no evil, no vileness, no wickedness will ever be permitted to come into his presence ever again. Christ died on the cross and rose from the grave to to uh, to conquer us, to conquer his enemies, to put down every enemy that belong that that stood in his way. And he protects us even now against the dark powers that are around us. Even today, we may say we long for the day in which this is the case, right? Because we live in a, as I said, we live in a world that hostilities uh, have not ceased. Wars, rumors of wars, all kinds of crazy things go on. People are losing their minds. We can't define women, men, or anything else. And so we have people, we have people that, are, that, are, that are surgeons and working on six- and seven-year-old little boys and girls to carve them up and to cut them up. And uh, we have all kinds of crazy going on. And yet in the midst of all of this... God has not lost. God has not lost. God is working. God is moving. God is destroying everything that is detestable and false and exalts its name, exalts itself against Christ. And it's an amazing reality for us as we, as we look and as we think, right, about paradise restored. Because I guess if we, if we could call the fall anything, um, I think it was Milton who called, uh, who called uh, Eden uh, paradise and talked about in the fall paradise being lost. Well, I think if anything, Revelation 22 serves as paradise restored. Um, paradise given to us again. And we see this beautiful tour taking place going on and on and on. 
And we see this enormous size of this city, and now we see this river that works and moves. And it highlights the, it does highlight the connection with the other rivers that are mentioned in the Old Testament. Again, this is garden language, right? If you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, you'll see how the Pishon and the Euphrates and the Tigris and all these flowed out of the garden. Well, here, only one flows, only one flows, and it's brought into view here, a bright, a beautiful, clear, clean river, bright as crystal, and it flows where? From the throne of God and of the Lamb. That is where? Well, according to John here, that's in the midst of the city. He sees this river, and it's flowing, and it's, it's, it's glorious, and it's good, and it's clear. I don't know if you've ever seen, I don't know if you've ever seen crystal uh, streams that are flowing, you know, out, out of the side of the, uh, out of the sides of mountains, and they're beautiful, and they're breathtaking, and they just smell. Like, you know, you, you come home, and you turn on your tap water, and you smell it, you're like, ah, chlorine. But you go out there, and you smell it, and like, man, that's beautiful, right? Man, that's, that's glorious. Well, this is the most beautiful, crystal clear, cleanest smelling river John talks about. And it is the symbol of eternal life. Remember what Jesus said to the woman at the well. He talked about streams of living water bursting forth. If you drink this water, he tells her, if you drink this water, you're going to be thirsty again. She said, well, give me the water that I don't have to ever come back here again. She said, he said, no, 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 you misunderstand. Right? Believe, believe in me and you will have bubbling crystal living waters bubbling up from among you in your own self. And this is what John is seeing, a beautiful symbol of eternal life and a spiritually pure eternal salvation that is ours in Christ. And, and by the way, in case you're wondering, Ezekiel sees this river flowing as well in Ezekiel 40 through 48. He describes it, except in his vision, it's flowing from the temple. Whereas John, now living after Christ, after the resurrection, now says, well, it is the temple, but the temple is Christ. The temple is God. And it's flowing from the throne of God and from the throne of the Lamb. But it tells the same truth, that God Almighty in Jesus Christ is the abundant source of real and eternal life. And anyone who repents and believes in the gospel of Jesus Christ will be saved. We will overcome death. We will live the life that is never-ending, that is good, and that it is perfect. And here's the problem. So let me say this. Here's the problem with much of, of, of live your best life now theology, right, of, of some, some preachers. Live, get what you can, live your best life. In the sense of what they're desiring, they are not wrong. The application of what they ultimately want is wrong. They want to live a life that is that is that is that is freed from problems and issues and and free from sin and free from this most of the time. If I'm being generous, some of them are just charlatans, but if I'm being generous, they desire truly these things. But the application of it is all wrong. They want it here, they want it in this life, they want it now. Live your best life now, get what you can now, live a healthy, prosperous life now, but we're not made for now. We're not made for now. We live in now, but we were made for eternity. 
And so our eyes are right in desiring the beauty and the glory and the mercy of Christ and living a life that that is filled with the blessings of God and living an abundant life, but that is not now. That is for us to experience and to enjoy only in Christ. That is something that it is experienced and enjoyed only in King Jesus. Because this living water is life that is stronger than death. This living water is stronger than all things. And John gives us these pictures of, these, of, of the water and the, the tree and all of this to remind us of what was lost in the garden, what was lost by our fall in our first parents. And God's new creation is a marvelous orchard of trees, uh, uh, not just one tree. And, and get this, and this is what I think is so beautiful. There's not just one tree here, but there's an orchard, a manifest orchard of trees of the tree of life representing the abundance, the abundance of God's mercy, the abundance of God's free grace in Christ, the abundance of God's sovereign grace that is given to us in Christ. An abundant crop, an abundant fruit of various types of, various kinds of fruit, but all of them pointing to the one reality that this is the tree of life. And what an encouraging image of God God's loving grace and caring for his church as he ushers us into the eternal, everlasting kingdom. When Christ returns, his completed church will be there, gathered from all over the world as the New Jerusalem, a massive city, a huge city with a multitude of inhabitants, too many to count, and no one will ever get hungry, no one will ever get thirsty, no one will ever go without These trees not only provide food, but what else do they provide? Leaves. Now, I don't pretend to understand all of this, so please forgive me if, if, if uh, I don't explain all of this to your liking. Um, come back later and maybe I'll have a different answer for you. But the reality is, is that God, John does say, mention something here in, in chapter 22. He talks about the leaves that were the, for the healing of the nations. The leaves that were for the healing of the nations. I don't know all of the extent to which this is meant, so let me let me just be honest with you, um, because I think there's a there's a myriad of different um, of different understandings here that we can have. But I will say this: it certainly certainly we know that God's new creation will be free from all misery, all sin, and and there will be no one who will be need, in need of any type of healing, right? But what are the leaves that are given for the healing of the nations? Well, if, if in fact, as I think it is, this is still Eden, uh, Eden's language, what was it that Adam and Eve did as soon as they ate from the tree? It says that their eyes were open, they saw they were naked, and they ran off and sewed a bunch of fig leaves together. And thus plunging us into our cosmic conflict. The leaves for the healing of the nations, I think, have to do with God restoring that which was taken from us. And what was taken from us? No, and I don't mean being able to be naked in front of each other, right? But what I mean is in that there was, um, 
there was a vulnerability. There was vulnerability. There was, there was intimacy in our relationships. And I think, again, God is, God is renewing and restoring that which was stolen ultimately by the fall that our relationships will be perfect, that our relationships will be, will be honoring to Christ, that we will be able to once again fully trust one another. We know that God is at work in doing this, even today through Christ. But, it, in, but John's final vision here, it reinforces again and again the constant, the constant contrast between the world as we know it today, filled with pain and suffering and death, and the glorious promise of a future world that is filled with life and fullness of, of an abundant blessing. The eternal life that God gives us, the fullness of God's eternal life is given to us. And so step by step, what is John doing? John is showing us where we're going, what we're going to. It, it, it's amazing to me that um, I don't know if, if you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, but if you have, you'll know that there was a, there's a scene as, Pil, as, as faithful and, and Christian enter into, um, enter into Vanity Fair, and it talks about how as, as Christian and, and faithful enter into Vanity Fair, that it says that everybody was sort of just gathering around them and was staring at them and was, was looking at them very intently because they were very strangely dressed, not like any kind of other dress that they'd ever seen, and and it says that the merchants became irate with them because uh, they didn't have hardly anything to their, to their name. Um, and every time they would try to get them to buy something, they, it says they would plug their ears and they would cry out something along the lines of, of um, look, to look, look upward or look to heaven, my soul. Right? Look, look, look to Christ. And ultimately, because, and it talks about how their language was so very different from the language of Vanity Fair. Well, the, the, this is the reality for us today, right? We speak a different language. We speak, a, uh, we speak a, uh, in, in different terms. We worship a God that is different than the God of this world or the gods of this world. And yet, in ultimately, we see that God is going to one day reveal through our faithfulness uh, God is going to convert the nations through the preaching of the gospel and God guarantees us that he is going to do this work no matter how misunderstood we may be today no matter how uh, how 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 angry or critic uh, uh, how we get critiqued God is working to remove the scars that were that were born uh, or that, that were carved into this creation and into us by the fall and so step by step, God gives us this grandiose vision, picture of what it's like to live completely and perfectly as God's building project, as his people built together in Christ. And I would say this in Luke, uh, in, in 22, in 22.3, look what it says here. And there shall be no more curse. This isn't talking about yelling curse words at people, right? right? We're not talking about yelling, yelling obscenities here. There will be no more curse. There will be nothing accursed. There will be nothing accursed. There will no longer be anything accursed. Nothing. The curse will have been completely wiped free. The world and our lives will be wiped free from the curse that we are so, as we daily still live with this. It has been abolished, gone forever. 
And we recognize the superabundance of God's grace for us in Christ and his ultimate provision that he promised in Genesis 3, 14 through 19. The curse will ultimately be reversed. Man's exile from paradise will be completely undone and we as the new Jerusalem will dwell in the presence of God forever. Are you still with me on this? I hope so. Your God, my God, our God promises, makes promises, and he is a promise keeper. Our God makes promises, beautiful promises to us. And one day, in the midst of our own dark and depressing lives and places in which we may live, our relationships that are not the garden, God promises there will one day, we will one day dwell in the ultimate garden returned for his glory and his honor. And it's amazing. So people ask, and I want to close with this. Uh, I know my time's well, well over. I didn't mean to go this, this long, but let me, let me just say this. People ask a lot, well, what are we going to be doing? What are, like, what, what are we going to be doing there? Like, like, are we just going to be like, because the popular idea, if you grew up in the cart with the cartoons when I was a kid, right? Um, you know, uh, you know, somebody dies. They're sitting up there stringing on a on a harp, and they're just they got their little wings and they're flittering, flittering around like little fat chair babies, right? But that's that's not what that's not what it, we're told here. We're actually told five things that the servant people of God will be doing. I don't know if you noticed it as we read the text, but I, I do want to go through them, and then we'll then we'll be finished. The five things that John lists are these: one. We will worship him in chapter three, or in, I'm sorry, in chapter 